Father, we want the word of life to change us into the image of your own dear son. We want to be holy because we know that we are not now what we will be, but we want you to make us and to form us so that we look more and more like your son. So, Father, as we open your word, we pray for you to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever read anything about Winston Churchill, you know that even though he was a great hero and leader, he was also someone with an enormous ego. He, he really viewed himself as above and set apart from ordinary people. In fact, he was notorious for treating his servants very poorly. And his biographer, William Manchester, recounts this one occasion when one of Churchill's manservants uh, decided to stand up to Churchill's bullying, because that's how he dealt with his servants sometime. And th this confrontation between the manservant and Churchill led to this, this uh, explosive uh, argument that they had. And at the end of it, Churchill, he is uh, really angry and sort of simmering at the end of it. At the end of it, he looks at the manservant and he says, you were very rude to me. And the servant, still, he's still angry too. He says, yes, but you were rude too. And then Churchill says, yes, but I am a great man. <laughs> so when you listen to Churchill, you get the impression that he really believes that he's a great man. And you also get the impression that he perhaps held to what is called the great man view of history, at least insofar as it might apply to himself. And this was a view of history that is no longer in vogue now, but was popular among English historians in the 19th century. And, and according to the great man view of history, it basically held that certain men were of a higher quality than ordinary people. They had natural ability and endowments that allowed them to shape the very pages of history. These men were born to lead and deserved to lead because of their natural abilities and talents. Now, whether or not this theory of history is true or not, it certainly does turn rotten if a person becomes convinced that he himself is a great man and that everyone else needs to bow and scrape before him and his greatness. If that attitude is corrosive in public life, how much more corrosive is it and poisonous in the church? Can you imagine what a great man view of the church would look like? Where some leader began to regard himself as the key and indispensable figure in the church's life. Where he began to think of himself and his gifts as so indispensable that he believed the maintenance of his own position and plan should be guarded at all costs that he would make everyone else's interests serve his own interests because, after all, he is God's sole and decisive gift to the church. My dad had an expression that he used for people who started to feel this way about themselves. He would say that he's gotten too big for his britches. You ever hear that? He would tell me that sometimes when I was starting to act arrogant. 
Son, you're getting too big for your britches. This is apparently what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you haven't opened, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 31. There were some in the Corinthian church that were getting a little too big for their britches. They possessed certain gifts that they thought made them great men of the church or great people of the church. And as a result, they were exalting in their own giftings and perhaps overlooking the giftings of others, which means they were exalting themselves and overlooking their brothers and sisters in the church who didn't share those giftings. And the key gift at issue seems to be the gift of tongues that we have talked about the last a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. So for the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to tell them that if they understood themselves and the body of Christ correctly, they wouldn't be exalting themselves over other believers within the church. And so this passage is dominated by this singular metaphor, the church as the body of Christ. He says the church as the body of Christ is one body with many members. And Paul provides at least four levels of instruction about the body of Christ. So this is where we're going. He says, first of all, there's diversity in the body in verses 12 through 13. He talks about my place in the body in verses 14 through 20. He talks about my brother's place in the body in verses 21 to 26 through 26. And then he talks about the gifts of the body in verses 27 through 31. So first of all, diversity in the body in verses 12 through 13. Everybody look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Notice, first of all, that Paul wants us to keep in mind the whole and the parts. The whole is the body and the parts are the members, the body parts. When you think about the human body, you cannot really conceive of the whole without the parts. Indeed, all of our limbs and organs are integrated into a whole that we call the body. There is diversity with respect to the parts, but unity with respect to the whole. Just as there is unity and diversity within the human body, Paul says, so it is with Christ. And here he's using Christ to mean the body of Christ. The expression is, I think, along the same lines that Paul heard from Jesus himself when he was converted. When Saul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, you remember this? He was on his way to persecute Christians. And yet Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's persecuting Christians and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? As, it's as if Jesus is saying, these people are me. These, this is my body that you're persecuting. Jesus spoke of Christians as me, and some people believe that Paul got this metaphor of the body of Christ from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. In any case, Paul's point is that the church is the body, and the whole body is composed of many different parts. And the diversity of the body's parts does not cancel out the body's unity as an integrated whole. On the contrary, The diversity serves and enables the whole to function. So how are all the different members of Christ's body integrated into the whole? We'll look at the next verse, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, some translations say by one spirit we were all baptized, which would make the Holy Spirit the one who does the baptizing. But elsewhere, Scripture says that Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So I think probably um, Jesus is probably understood as the agent of the baptism here, which means we should probably render this kind of along the lines of the ESV so that baptism is in one spirit and is parallel to drinking of the spirit. Water baptism, and that's what I think he has in mind here, water baptism signifies something that is happening spiritually. For Paul, baptism in the uh, in, in water is representing this immersion in the spirit so that water baptism in the spirit is closely linked to baptism in water. And, and in his mind, I think he's saying that they both happen at conversion or close together at conversion. Baptism in the spirit is what brings someone into the body of Christ. So notice what he says. This is really important. It's not some Christians who are baptized in the Spirit. All Christians are baptized in the Spirit. That means that all Christians are integrated into the body by the Spirit. And there are no exceptions to this. He says whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all are baptized and incorporated into the body of Christ. Now think about what this means. Jews versus Greeks refers to a person's ethnic and religious background, primarily. Slave versus free refers to a person's social background. Paul's saying that none of these aspects of human diversity change the fundamental truth that if you are in Christ, you are all the way in. You are a member of the body of Christ, and you are not less a member of the body of Christ because of any ethnic or social distinction. This is why when we are at our best, we teach our children at a very early age, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. What are we saying when we teach that to our children? We are saying that even though the world may be divided and discriminating against one another because of ethnic and social hostilities, those kinds of things don't divide us from one another in the body of Christ. Your race, your sex, your social class, none of it prevents or enhances your full incorporation into the body of Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 27 to 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What this means is, is, that, is that there is a glorious and unshakable unity that we have in Christ. We have all partaken of the same spirit and are united together in this body. Every single one of us. And the things that divide people out there, like racial hostilities and ethnic animus, those can have no foothold in here among us. In fact, 
God is calling us to be a ray of light in the midst of the darkness out there. And we have borne witness to much darkness this week. A man in Florida mails in bombs to politicians he doesn't like. Thankfully, none of them went off. But he was trying to kill people. Yesterday, a man walks into a Jewish community center at what I'm told is the equivalent of a baby dedication and saying something like, all Jews must die. Kills, I think, 11 people. Wednesday, here in Louisville, guy walks into Kroger with his grandson. Man comes up behind him, shoots him in the head at point-blank range. Goes into the parking lot, finds another woman, kills her. A guy watching all this happen pulls his gun out, a bystander. And the shooter says, don't shoot me, I won't shoot you. Whites don't kill whites. There's racial animus out there. There's ethnic animus out there that's real. And it's a heinous sin. And God is calling us in the midst of this so that in here, that doesn't exist here. We are witnessing against that, which means we can clearly say that it's evil when we see it. And it means that we can look at one another and we love each other in a way that, that's not happening like it's supposed to out there. This is, a, this is a good time for us to think about this. We were just talking about in, in Sunday school, uh, Matthew 5, 21, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Then Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You get what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that, look, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder. We all understand that, we, we, that murder is evil, right? Jesus is saying, if you have in your heart the animus that leads to murder, that's wrong too. And it's so wrong that if you don't deal with it, you'll go to hell. Racial animus takes people to hell. That's what we believe. Ethnic animus takes people to hell. That's why it can't exist in here. And we have to call it for what it is. God has called us to love one another and to be a ray of light in the darkness. He is calling us to show the world how in Christ all of the usual hostilities are removed. And in place of hostility and fear and mistrust, the Holy Spirit causes love to break out even amongst differences. Just normal diversity. The fruit of the Spirit is love. He causes us not to seek our own interests, but the interests of others above and before our own interests. Real live love. 
between us. Well, how is this going to happen? I think, you know, at this point, Paul gets really practical how this is going to happen within the body of Christ. He talks about diversity in the body, and he's talking about an ethnic social diversity that is good and celebrated. But then he moves to my place in the body. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, now Paul is going to press on this body analogy. And the thing that he wants us to see is that the diversity of the body doesn't undermine its unity. Rather, its unity depends on its diversity. If you don't have a lot of different members functioning properly, then you don't have a body at all, at least not a, a human body. So look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, I labeled this point my place in the body because in these two verses, the focus is on the first person. Because I am not a hand. I don't belong to the body because I'm not an eye. I don't belong to the body. So the metaphor is focusing our attention on how an individual member of the body might think of himself. And so it makes you focus your attention on how you might think of yourself and your place in the body of Christ versus the way things really are. Some of you are tempted at times to look at yourself and to despair that you might have anything to offer to this church. You are tempted to think that if you weren't here, nobody would miss you. You don't have a great man complex. You have the opposite. You look around at other people in the congregation and their gifts, and you see yourself as coming up short of them. And so you see someone else's role in the church, and you think, because I can't contribute what that person is contributing, I'm not really important in this church. If you are tempted to think that, Paul is saying to you right here, you're wrong. You may have a low assessment of your place in the body, but that doesn't make your assessment right. If that's what you are thinking, you're just wrong. How do we know that? Look what Paul says in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And the image here is, if you play it out, it's a little bit grotesque, but, but let's go with it for just a minute. Can you imagine a human being that has no arms, no legs, no head, no shoulders, no fingers, no toes? Instead, the whole body is just a fleshy blob with eyes. Can you imagine that? Eyes flashing all around in this little blob of eyes. If you were to see that, you would not even think that you were looking at a human being. You would think yourself face-to-face -face with some kind of a monster. But even if such a being did exist, all that being would have is eyes all around. Now listen, we, we love our eyes. We don't want to lose our eyes. They're important to us. But for all the love and care we have for our eyes, how many of you wish you were only made out of eyes? Nobody wishes that. Because you would feel the loss of your other members more than you would feel the addition of more eyes. 
Not only would you be a monster and subhuman, you wouldn't be able to smell. You wouldn't be able to walk. You wouldn't be able to hear someone talking to you. You wouldn't feel the sun warm on your skin anymore. We love our eyes, but we don't act like our eyes are everything. We love our eyes. We love our ears. We love our legs and arms and stomachs and livers and elbows and all of it, right? We don't want to be composed of just one body part. We love the integrated whole. That is the assumption of our existence. What that means is, is you shouldn't look at someone else's gift and then conclude from that that your gift doesn't matter. Don't conclude from that that you don't matter. We don't need a bunch of hands and eyes and heads. We need some ears and noses and big toes and some sensitive skin on this part of your forearm and that thick stuff that doesn't hurt at all on the edge of your elbow. We need all of it, which means we need you. Why is that? Well, look at verse 18. Because God has underwritten this diversity. But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If you don't think you have a critical and important place in the body, you need to know you're contending with God about this. Because this verse says that God has set each member of the body, including you, right where he wants them to be. That means that God has so made you and gifted you in just the way he wants And you have a contribution for the whole, whether you realize it or not. You don't have to know everything. You don't even have to know your gifts. All you need to know is that through the Spirit of God, by the sovereign purpose of God, you are a gift to this body. We are better when you are here and worse when you are gone. That's what this text is teaching us. Every single person is here because God has so arrayed the body that you're here. Why is that? Look here at verse 19. Why is it that we're better when you're here and worse when you're gone? Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is it. The blob of eyes is not a body. The blob of ears is not a body. The stack of arms is not a body. The body is all the members together sewn by God's design into an integrated and beautiful whole. Do you believe that? Even if you find it hard to believe it, it is no less true. Just because the one body part says, I'm not an eye, that doesn't make him any less a part of the body. As a spirit-filled disciple of Christ, you are most needed and wanted here. So Paul addresses diversity in the body. He talks about my place in the body. Then he talks about third, my brother's place in the body. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the feet to the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now do you see how the focus shift right there? Before it was someone thinking about themselves and their own place in the body. Now it's somebody thinking about other people's place. In the body, my brother's place in the body. So if the previous verses focus on how one of the members might have a low regard for his own place in the body, these verses focus on how one member might have a low regard for someone else's place in the body. If the previous verses are directed to members who have a low self-image, 
These verses are directed to those who have an inflated self-image. It's directed to those with a great man complex, to those who think their gifts and calling are so great that they're indispensable to the body, while the other parts are dispensable, which means they've just gotten too big for their britches. Paul says that if you're thinking about the church as a body, you're not going to think like that, that there are certain members that are dispensable. Because is that how you think of your own physical body? Do you view some of your body parts as dispensable? What if your arms and legs were taken from you? Would that be okay with you? What if just one arm and one leg were taken from you? Would that be okay? See, you're just just losing one of each. What if all your toes were taken and you were able, able to keep everything else? Would that be agreeable to you? Of course it wouldn't be. It wouldn't, you wouldn't forfeit one of your toes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You would move heaven and earth to keep every single part of your body if someone were, to, someone were to come and try to take it from you by force. If you think that you need every single member of your body, why would you ever think that you don't need a single member of this body? This is Christ's body. <clears throat> how could we ever look at even one of our members and say, we have no need of you? We can't do that if you understand what the body of Christ is. Paul says that we aren't ever supposed to treat each other that way or even think about one another that way. You don't think about your own body that way. Don't think about Christ's body that way, as if you could do without parts of it. Instead, this is how we're supposed to think. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Or you might even translate it, they're necessary. Do you see one of your fellow members as kind of a spare or as dispensable? Paul says, wrong. They are necessary for the whole. Look at verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we we bestow greater honor. If you think somebody else in the church is less honorable, what's your responsibility towards them? It's not to keep looking down your nose at them. Don't don't think of them and treat them that way. You give them greater honor. You love and respect them and you value them for the gift that they are to the church. You're not allowed to look down upon them. You're not even allowed to feel that way. Verse 23 again, and our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Now, I think the unpresentable part here is no doubt a a reference to sexual organs. So in this metaphor of the body, certain body parts are sexual organs. Those parts of our body that we all believe are pretty important, right? Even though we keep them behind clothes, we don't want them to be seen, But even though they're behind clothes and unseen, that doesn't make them less important or or less valuable to us. No, it means that we do everything we can to make them presentable. In this case, in the metaphor here, it means modestly covering them. We don't denigrate them. We honor them with great honor. And you can see how he's applying this to some of the more unseemly members, as it were, in the congregation. They require honor and care and, and for us to recognize their integral part of, of the community. Look at verse 24. 
second part of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God gives honor to these less presentable parts, so we should do the same. Why? Verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We're not supposed to be criticizing or denigrating one another for what we see as shortcomings. On the contrary, we're supposed to be caring for one another. We're supposed to build one another up. And that has, a very, that has very practical implications for us. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Can, can you have a toothache in your hand and not care about it? Can you have uh, some pain in your, stub your toe and your arms don't care? This doesn't make sense. Whatever is in pain, your whole focus goes to that, that point in your body that's in pain, right? That's how the body works as a whole. Even if it's just one part of the body that, that's hurting, you have to be able to love one another so much that you feel your brother's joy as your own joy. And you feel your brother or your sister's pain as your own pain. That's what this means. That's the essence of love. When you feel things like that from the heart for a brother and sister in Christ. Maybe a good way to think about this is for those of you who have kids how you feel about your own kids. When your kid gets sick and is miserable, how does that make you feel? When your kid gets insulted or teased at school, do you feel that personally? Does their pain all of a sudden become your pain and outrage? You know that you feel that personally. In a really special and profound way, their pains are your pains and their joys are your joys. When your kid kicks the winning goal, you don't sit there and think, oh, I wish I would have done that and gotten the credit. No, uh, that, that's not what you think. When you kid, your kid does that, it's better than when you did that or never did that. <laughs> Their joys are your, your joys. It just sort of happens to you. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's the very same thing that he commanded in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So the ability to feel the joys and the sufferings of brothers and sisters in Christ reveals whether or not you can set aside your own interests long enough to really enter into somebody else's life. If you can't do that, you can't love. That's what it reveals. So this is enormous for us, whether we feel these, our, our brother and sister's anxieties, their pains, their fears. You know, I think, about the, I think about our own church, red, yellow, black, and white. How do brothers and sisters feel after what we saw this week in Louisville? We, we should not overlook that. We ought to empathize with that and hurt over that. 
So Paul talks about diversity in the body. He talks about my place in the body, my brother's place in the body, but finally, the gifts in the body. Everybody look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now the key thing to note here is that the you is plural. He means that you all, all of you, don't, don't interpret this just individualistically, all of you together are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So he's summing up everything that's, that's come before right before he launches into an application of the principle to the gifts of the Spirit. Now, you remember this whole section of Scripture is about gifts. He finally comes back to the issue of gifts after dealing with diversity and unity more generically. Now he's coming back to the gifts. How does all this apply to the distribution of gifts within the body of Christ? Look at verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, Second, prophets, and third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So here we have this, another gift list, one that's actually quite different from the one we read at the beginning of chapter 12 in verses 8 through 10. There's some overlaps with that first list in verses 8 through 10, but there are some important differences here in this list. There are a number of items on this list that weren't in that earlier list. Um, namely, apostles, teachers, helping, and administrating. That wasn't in the first list. There are items in the former list that aren't in this list, namely word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, distinguishing of spirits, interpretation of tongues. Um, th that's not in this list. That tells us that none of these lists are meant to be exhaustive. I don't, I don't even think the sum total of all the lists in all of the New Testament are meant to be exhaustive lists of the kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. Rather, I think they're ad hoc lists of the kinds of gifts that God works among His people. Another difference here in this list is the naming of the gifts. Did you catch that? Did you notice that the first three gifts are stated as offices while the rest are listed as gifts? So you have apostles, prophets, and teachers followed by miracles, healings, etc., why is that? I, I think the reason probably lies in the fact that Paul wishes to set off the first three gifts from the rest of the list. And I think that's confirmed by the fact that he enumerates those first three gifts. So first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, which means that he, he's probably seeing something special about these first three gifts. And I think it's special along the lines that we talked about uh, the last, uh, uh, last week. Tom Schreiner explains it this way. He says, the reason for this is not hard to discern. Since these are foundational gifts in the life of the church, all the gifts are important and the contribution of every member matters, but some gifts play a more central role than others. Apostles, prophets, and teachers play a crucial role in the founding, that would be apostles and prophets, the founding of the church, and then, and then the maintenance of the church, that'd be the teachers. For they proclaim and explicate the gospel, which is the very basis of the church's life. Now, it's really important to notice here, even though after you've looked at the whole list and you kind of think about what's first, second, and third, what's really important to notice here is what Paul puts last on the list. It's the gift of tongues. That is not an accident. 
Whereas there were some Corinthians who were perhaps exalting in that particular gift and thinking, oh, I'm speaking in tongues, that makes me super spiritual, great. Paul puts it not first, he doesn't put it second or third, but all the way at the bottom of the list. He's doing everything he can rhetorically to get them to see that this gift needs to be set in proper perspective. And the proper perspective requires that they understand what he says in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Now, the ESV doesn't bring out the force of these questions, I think, uh, properly. In Greek, they're worded in such a way that requires a negative answer. So if I were going to paraphrase it to bring that out, it would go like this. Everyone in the church is not an apostle, is he? Everyone is not a prophet, is he? Everyone is not a teacher, is he? Every person doesn't, get, doesn't work miracles, do they? Does every person have a healing gift? No way. Do all speak in tongues? No way. Do all interpret? Not a chance. So what Paul is simply trying to make clear, what body diversity means. Not only are there a variety of gifts, but there are also a variety of people who get the individual gifts. But no single person is promised all the gifts, or any particular singular gift. To the point at hand, that means that not everyone is going to speak in tongues or prophesy. Because it just, it's not going to happen. This is important to remember because there are some groups out there who will tell you that you have not been baptized in the Spirit unless you have spoken in tongues. You know, I grew up in a small town in South Louisiana. We had a lot of United Pentecostals there in my town. I knew and was friends with, with many of them, but that was their view of this. If you hadn't spoken in tongues, you really hadn't experienced the baptism of the Spirit yet. But that view isn't really supported by this, this text of Scripture, is it? Because verse 13, he clearly says that all of us have been baptized in one Spirit, and yet he's saying that not all of us are going to have all these gifts, including the gift of tongues. So to say that you must speak in tongues if you are baptized in the Spirit goes directly against what, what Paul's saying here. And Paul's the one who's right, not the people who are saying otherwise. But in the next verse, Paul gives us a glimpse into where he's going to take the argument from here. But he does this in an unexpected way. Look at verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is really a transition to, to chapter 13. Paul's just finished saying that we're all individually members of Christ's body and that God bestows more abundant honor upon those members who seem less honorable. It's kind of strange that he says this. He's been focusing on our unity and not making too much of one sing, sing, single gift. So why in the world would he now turn around and say something so inequitable, it sounds it only sounds inequitable because when Paul says higher gifts, some translations say greater gifts, he doesn't mean higher or greater as in that which makes you better than other people in the church. Um, he, de he's defi he defines what he means by higher gifts in chapter 14 and verse 5, which says this, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. We'll talk about this more later, why he says this. But he, look what he says. He says, unless someone interprets, so that the church might be built up. 
Prophecy is not valued as a greater gift because it glorifies the prophet. It's greater because it edifies the body, because the body can understand it. So it's, and it does that in a way that an untranslated tongue cannot. So when Paul commands for us to earnestly desire the greater gifts, I think what he means is those gifts that edify the church. And that should indeed be our aspiration. We are here to serve one another, not to serve ourselves. We ought to aspire for the greater gifts that serve that end. But even greater than the exercise of any gift is what Paul says in the final phrase. And I will still show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is the way of love, which is supposed to be the context in which all of these gifts are exercised and the context in which we relate to one another in everything that we do and say and think. And that's going to be the the point of chapter 13 next time. So Paul talks about diversity in the body, my place in the body, my brother's place in the body, and then these gifts in the body, which are diverse. If all that's true, let me just give you a couple of takeaways that I think apply here. First one is this. If all this is true, we must value the diversity of the body of Christ. The the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, our church, Kenwood Baptist Church, is really a miracle. How in the world could so many different kinds of people come together and love and care for one another except by miracle? There are people in this room that you would not ever have associated with unless a miracle happened. It's supposed to make you smile. (laughs) Because some of you are looking at me and you're thinking, I never would have liked that guy, I don't think. That's just the way it is. But it's wonderful, isn't it? It just doesn't happen often in the world that red, yellow, black, and white would not only be precious in God's sight, but would also be precious in each other's sight. This is what God intends for the body to be. He's appointed each one of us as a place. It's his choice and his plan for our benefit. How could we ever second guess the diversity that God has given to us at every level? Second thing I would say, we must understand that God's truth about the body trumps our misconceptions about the body. Just because you may feel yourself to be unimportant to the body of Christ does not change the fact that you are in fact a crucial component of the body. You are what he says you are, quite apart from how you may feel at your most discouraged moments. And you need to take comfort and hope in that. Third thing I would say, we don't have any room for the great man syndrome in this church. The church does not stand or fall on any single person in this church. God has so arrayed the body just as he wills. And there's one great man And we worship him. His name is Jesus. The rest of us are servants of his. It doesn't serve anyone for you to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You are an important member of the body, but you're not the only important member. You're a crucial member of the body, but you're not the only crucial member. And you should never look on yourself and be impressed and then look down at others 
and be unimpressed because they don't measure up to some worldly standard of greatness. If you're here this morning and all of this sounds strange to you and new, maybe you're not a Christian. You've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, which means your heart has never been awakened to the things of God. You need to know the Bible says that you're a sinner, which means you've transgressed God's commands at every level of your being. The Bible says that God so loved you that he sent his own son to die for your sins on a cross. And after three days, he raised him from the dead. The Bible says you can't earn the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. You just have to trust in Jesus and believe in what he has done for you on your behalf. And if you repent of your sin and trust in him, the Bible says you will be saved. No matter who you are, red, yellow, black, white, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, anybody can come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. I pray that you would use it to save your elect. Bring them to yourself. And I pray that you would use it to sanctify your elect. Make us like your